prophets were basically preachers. They were preachers in the latter part of the history of God's people during the divided kingdom period and even the uh, captivity and the return. And uh, we ought to look at them primarily as being preachers. We're going to hear their sermons. They were inspired sermons, and so they're wonderful, have excellent lessons for us. Would somebody read Hosea chapter 1, verse 1? The word of the Lord which came to Hosea the son of Bay during the days of Uzziah, Jonah, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joseph, Joash, king of Israel. Okay, so we know from this introductory verse what Hosea was giving. What was he giving? Word of the Lord. Word of the Lord. So this is this is God's message, and He gives the time period. He gives the kings of Judah during this time period: Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And perhaps much of the time period of Hosea would have been during Ahaz's kingship, based upon some of the things that he says in the book. What do you know about Ahaz's kingship? Very bad. One of the worst. Uh, did all manner of evil, even to the point of child sacrifice for the gods. He was he was really bad. Um, and during the days of which king of Israel? Jeroboam. Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam the second, who was also evil. He doesn't even mention later kings of Israel, perhaps because he didn't consider them legitimate. There was a lot of anarchy and chaos, and one king assassinating the previous one to assume the throne. But this gives us a general time period. It's in, near the end of the uh, reign of Israel. You remember which nation took the Israel, the northern kingdom, into captivity? Syria. That was Assyria. Remember what year? 722. About 722. So this would be maybe in the 750s, 740s, 730s, in that general time period, just a little bit, before Israel is taken to captivity. It's a period generally of prosperity, but moral laxness for the people of God. And um, so that, that's basically what we're looking at. Hosea will more talk to the northern kingdom, I think, but he has messages for both. Do you have any comments or questions about this first verse and kind of the general setting of this? Okay, would somebody read 2 through 9? The Lord began to speak by Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, if the land is committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and said, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring to an end the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, for I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them, <coughs> will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by the bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. Now when she had weaned Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Loamai, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Okay, we're going to look at this fairly carefully, so see if we can kind of think together on this. God tells Hosea to do something rather shocking. What does he tell him to do? 
Don't marry a harlot. I am not sure whether she already was or whether she was going to become one. I don't know if it makes a whole lot of difference. Either way, uh, would that be the kind of wife you would choose? No. How is Hosea going to feel marrying a woman who at least would become a harlot if she hadn't already had that uh, colorful past? How would you feel in that situation? Betrayed. Betrayed. Hurt. God is telling Hosea to do something that would be very painful for him. It would be very difficult for him. It's kind of interesting. It's almost like God's call to Hosea to be a prophet came in the form of an order to marry an immoral woman. Would God ever ask people to do things that were that difficult? Yeah. Remember what he asked Jeremiah to do regarding marriage? Don't take a wife. Don't. He, he felt very isolated already, very lonely, and God said, do not marry. Remember what he told Ezekiel to do regarding his wife? Don't mourn her death, even though she was beloved to him. God sometimes asks his servants to do very emotionally difficult things. Now, there's a reason why God says this. This is not quite as random an order as it might have appeared to be. Basically, God is setting up Hosea to be an acted parable. He's a parallel to God's relationship with his people. Because how, what kind of relationship did God assume with his people? He was like their what? Their husband. They were like his bride. Well, what happened with the nation of Israel? Fell into idolatry, which is like betraying the marriage covenant with God to follow after other lovers. What God is really doing is putting Hosea in a position to illustrate for the people how bad this hurts him. To have them being unfaithful to their marriage vows to him and following after other gods and even making covenants with other nations. So look in verse 2. What are the verbs of command here? At least in the New American Standard. What are the verbs of command that God gave Hosea in verse 2? To do what? Go. Go and take and have children. Look at the verbs in verse 3, the past tense verbs. He went and he took and she conceived and bore. Right down the line, Hosea promptly obeys step by step the orders that God gave. Give a comment or thought on uh, verses 2 and 3. Alright, so she uh, bore him a son. Now, he gives special names to these children that mean something. In this case, more than one something. What does he name this boy? Jezreel. Now, there's a lot to the name Jezreel. In the first place, there's the meaning of the name. Anybody know what the name Jezreel means in itself? God will scatter or God will sow. Yes. God scatters or God sows. Like sows, not the kind you do with the clothes, but sowing seed sows. Now, that seems kind of 
a little odd at first. How could a same word mean God scatters or God sows? But then stop and think, how did they sow seed back then? They did not have tractors and planters and all that kind of stuff back then. So they scattered it. So really there's quite a relationship between those two. Now, we're going to come back to the meaning of that in a minute. But that's part of why he gives him the name Jezreel. The other part is what he mentions in this verse. Why does he say to name him Jezreel? Revenge the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jacob. Exactly. Now, that's going to require us to go back to 2 Kings 9 and 10 for a minute. I'm going to take a detour. See if you can accompany me here. I want to go back and and briefly recount this story so that it will make sense why God would want to avenge the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. In 2 Kings 9, God sent uh, a prophet to uh, anoint Jehu as the next king and in verse 7 after he says in verse 6, I've anointed you king over Israel, you shall strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets. And so he's telling Jehu that his mission was to execute the people of the house of Ahab. Jehu did a fine job of it. Um, it so happened... This is a very bad part of the history of God's people. It so happened that the time uh, Jehu was anointed, that in both Israel and Judah, there were descendants of Ahab reigning. The son of Ahab, Jehoram, was reigning in Israel. He had gotten wounded in battle. A grandson of Ahab, Ahaziah, was reigning in Judah. He was the son through Athaliah, Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. And Ahaziah happened to be up visiting his wounded recuperating uncle in Jezreel when God sent the prophet to anoint Jehu to destroy the family of Ahab. That was quite convenient. He got both kings in the same place and managed to kill both of them with the bow and execute them and then he executed or he he ordered the execution of 70 sons of Ahab and had their heads brought and then he executed 42 relatives of Ahaziah I mean he's really wiping out the house of Ahab and that's the mission God had given him. And you look at 2 Kings chapter 10, after Jehu has done much of the dirty work. In verse 15, 2 Kings 10, 15, he invites Jehonadab up in his chariot. He says in 16, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Now here's a man who's been commissioned to wipe out the house of Ahab, and in Jezreel, he doesn't. And he tells Jehonadab, come see my zeal for the Lord. And then a few generations later, Hosea, God speaks through Hosea and says, I'm going to punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. It was the bloodshed that God had told him to shed. 
He told Jehu to kill those people. Jehu does, and then through Hosea, he says, I'm going to punish him for it. Now, why would God punish a family for their zeal for him? See the problem? You see that problem, I want you to continue the story, and I think you're going to see the answer. In 2 Kings 10, 18, Jehu has political reasons for wanting to get rid of the Baal worshippers because they would be supporters of Ahab. And so, he gathers all the people in 2 Kings 10, 18 for a super major Baal worship extravaganza. He says, this is going to be the biggest Baal worship celebration there's ever been. And I want all the Baal worshippers to be there. He even sends people to make sure there's no Jehovah worshippers there, and it's all Baal worshippers. And then he wipes them out. He got them all together so he could exterminate them. Do you see a problem with that? Is it good to kill Baal worshippers? <laughs> that was a good thing, absolutely. They were supposed to kill the idolater. So what, do you see any problem then with this account? Promoting idolatry. Sort of. Deception. Deception. What did he say he was doing? Worshipping Baal a lot. What was he doing? Arranging a convenient opportunity to exterminate all the Baal worshippers. Well, but if he's, if, he's, if he's killing the Baal worshippers, isn't it okay for him to lie to start it out, since he's got a good end? Obviously not. That tells you something about Jehu. He ends up doing some right things, but not for the right reasons. He's not doing it because he wants to honor God. He's doing it for personal reasons, and you can tell that because he's not doing it the way God would want him to do it. Come on down in 2 Kings 10.29. However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin, from these Jehu did not depart. Even the golden calves that were at Bethel that were dead. Now God commends him for his execution of the house of Ahab, but, verse 31, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. Now, if Jehu really wanted to serve God, what would he have done? Or down the altar. Absolutely. He would have opposed the golden calves that down in Bethel. <laughs> the fact that he didn't do that tells me he, he happened to fulfill some things God wanted done, but not because God wanted them done. If he had done it because God wanted them done, then he'd have done everything God said. Sometimes God's will and my will happen to coincide. In this case, I think politically, Jehu wanted to wipe out the house of Ahab and the Baal worshippers so it would consolidate his hold on the throne. And it so happened that God's will was the same thing for a whole different reason. But God, when somebody happens to do his will, but does it for the wrong reason, God is un unhappy. Jehu did not ultimately please God in this, because he used sinful means, because he continued in sin. What you see is his heart was not pure. What you see is that he used wrong means to a good end. What you see is that God saw through Jehu's pretended piety and he punishes him for his bad heart 
for the bloodshed of Jezreel that technically was what God wanted, but really wasn't what God wanted because of Jehu's mixed motives and bad hearts. God is not going to be pleased just because we happen to do the right thing. He's going to be pleased when we do the right thing for the right reason. Does that make sense? Comments and thoughts on that. Josh. intention part, but he did right in what he did. I think what we're seeing is he didn't do right in why he did it. You know, he did he did do the right thing. And for that, God even allowed his dynasty to last through the fourth generation. But he didn't really do it from the right heart, the right spirit. It really shows in the fact he didn't keep serving God. When God's will wasn't what he wanted, like with the golden calves of Dan and Bethel, then he doesn't do it. When God's will is what he wants for other reasons, then he doesn't. You really, ultimately, don't please God when all you do is the part of God's will that coincides with what you want. I think that's what you see in this. I think that's the proper resolution of those two passages. And I think it's really helpful for us, because I think there are times we do the same thing. I think there are times that some of what God says we already wanted to do. So we do it and we feel really good about ourselves. Come see our zeal for the Lord. But when God tells us some things we don't want to do, we don't do them. Well, if we only do the part we want to, I say we're not really obeying. It's just kind of a coincidence. And I say God knows the difference. Right. I think we fool ourselves into thinking that, you know, we're doing almost everything God has told us to do so we're, we're almost perfect, but if we're only doing almost, um, we're, we're still serving ourselves, you know, like um, Scott Smelser illustrated last summer that, you know, if we give God everything except we tell him that there's one thing that he can't do, then we're still controlling our lives and we're just letting him have um, a little influence in a couple of things. If you really have a zeal for God, if you really love God, you really want to do His will, well then you want to do His will all the time. Yeah. I think the verse put out in chapter 10, verse 16, if I really feel the Lord, I'm not going to say, come with my will to the Lord. I'm going to say, Lord, it's me. Absolutely. It would be so much better if He had said, come see my Lord, not come see my zeal for the Lord. And often when we have to talk about our zeal for the Lord, it's because we wouldn't somebody wouldn't see it otherwise. Yeah. But it's so deceptive. It's so easy for us to think we're doing well when we're really not. Yeah. I think it's interesting in verse thirty one of Second Kings ten that he says it did not take heed to walk in the law of the God of Israel with all his heart. Yes. He gave him the small piece. He said, this fraction of my time, this fraction of myself is yours, God. The rest of it is still mine. Yes. And even if you do what God wants you to do, but your heart's not in it, he talks about in the Old Testament and the prophecies, they do what I want them to do with their heart. They draw near me with their mouth, but there is no heart behind it. 
it doesn't matter if you don't love what you're doing, if you don't love what God says to do, it does not matter to Him that you're doing it. And we thought in the Old Testament the heart wasn't as important. But here, he's punishing Jehu because it's not with his whole heart that he's serving God. I really think the heart's important in both covenants and in everything we do before God. And God can tell. You can impress people sometimes rather easily. But God <laughs> can tell what the heart is. That's a really good lesson in my judgment. Other thoughts are coming. Yes. I was going to I think about um, in the New Testament we see Jesus... You know, it talks about the first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord thy God with all your heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. And that really is where it goes back to. If you've got that love for God in your heart, you'll think, who am I glorifying by my actions? Am I glorifying myself or glorifying my God? And if we ask that to ourselves, we'll realize that we don't deserve any glory, and there's no glory that we have but through our glory in the Father. We want the attention to be on God if we love God. We don't want the attention to be on us. You remember Hezekiah got sick and then got well, and the Babylonians sent presents and ambassadors to congratulate him. Remember what Hezekiah showed him? All his stuff. He raked out all the treasures out of his closet to show off to the Babylonians. What could he have shown the Babylonians? The great God that he served that had healed him from his sickness. He shows off himself, not the Lord. How many times do we do that? How many times... Do we want people to be, to be impressed, not with the greatness of our God, but with our personal greatness? Other thoughts? Chris? Is it, is it the same thing that he did with some of the nations that punished Israel? Yes. I mean, he, Absolutely. he obviously set them up and they came here and punished, but then later came back and said, because of what you did to my people. But they did what he wanted to do to an extent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like Isaiah 10. He used Assyria as the rod of his anger, but he said, you didn't intend it so. You were arrogant and prideful, and you did it out of self-will, even though it was really I who was using you. They, they accomplished what God wanted to be accomplished, but it wasn't their intention to do that. Their intention was to pridefully exalt themselves. God judges us based upon our intention, not just based upon the effect of our actions. It's a good lesson. I mean, we really have to watch that. We can say, well, I'm doing a lot of good. Well, maybe so. Did you intend it for good? Are you doing it because you want God to be glorified? Sometimes people do good because they want other people to be impressed with you. Or for various reasons. But if I'm not doing it because I want to glorify God, God's not really honored in that, even though coincidentally it is His will. Other thoughts? Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, haven't I done this in your name? Haven't I done that in your name? Will not make it to the kingdom of heaven. That's a true statement. Amen. And right before he says that, he talks about going through the straight gate. I mean, even if we see people who are doing good, very good, mission work, whatever it might be, bring all these people to Christ, there's still only a few who are going to make it. And sometimes we overlook that. So we've got to really watch our actions and make sure we're in that few. No. I saw a sign the other day. Church, and I said, if God is your co pilot, switch seats. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, do we really submit to God? Yeah, don't be taking, don't put God off to the side of your take suggestions from Let Him take control. Amen. So He says in Hosea 1 4 that I will 
put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Isn't that ironic? Break the bow of Israel. How did he kill Jehoram? How did he kill Ahaziah? And so, um, do you remember the last king in Jehu's lineage? Anybody remember? Zechariah was the king right after Jeroboam II. He reigned six months and he was assassinated. And that's the end of Jehu's <laughs> dynasty. Put to an end because God was punished, punishing them for doing what he said. <laughs> but for doing what he said with a bad motive. Right, in, in, the next child, a daughter. What's her name? Lo Ruhama. And uh, what does that mean? No mercy. No mercy, no compassion. Because God's not going to have compassion on them anymore. Now look back for a moment at 2 Kings 13.23. 2 Kings 13.23, this is a little bit earlier, not much, but a little bit earlier in their history. And in 2 Kings 13.23, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. Earlier God had had compassion. Now he says, no compassion. He's done with compassion. Is the Lord merciful, patient, and compassionate? Yes. Does his patience last forever? No. There's a limit, and they've reached the limit. Um, however, what about Judah? He's going to still have mercy on them. He will have mercy on them and save them, but save them how? In his way, not theirs. His way is... Yeah, he's going to save them not by human means. Not by, what does he say? Uh, bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. Now that's like saying, I'm going to save you, but it's not going to have anything to do with planes or bombs or artillery or, or the Navy or soldiers. Well, how do you save somebody from the military threat without any of those things? How did he save them, anyhow? The angel of the Lord. What's the angel of the Lord do? Yeah, killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers overnight. It's a good thing he didn't stay any longer. Um, that's what he's saying. God punished and destroyed Israel. He spared Judah for that period of time without human means. God really doesn't need human means anyway. You know, is God able to act without human cooperation? Well, of course. He doesn't need us to do anything. He often is merciful and uses us, but not because he'd be limited if he didn't have our cooperation. Yes? He allows us to give. He allows us to be used as a gift. Absolutely. And it is a gift to us when we can be used by him. My comments or questions on this through verse 7. Verse 7 was interestingly similar to Zechariah 4.6 where Zerubbabel is building the temple and his message to him was a threat against the people even with force and he says not by strength nor by might but by my spirit. It's almost as though God says I'm going to save you but I don't need you to help me. Yes. 
You don't need to. Oftentimes, Israelites, we're going to war. God's going to fight the battle. We need to build up. We need as many horses, as many chariots. Train everybody you can to swing a sword. And it's God's way of saying, you guys take the back seat on this one and watch how it's done. And I don't need you to come out. You're not going to be able to say, it's just like with Gideon, you're not going to be able to say that you had so many soldiers it didn't matter who was on your side. Absolutely. You just think about how many soldiers did, does God need to win the battle? Well, if he's facing 135,000 Midianites, how many did he need with Gideon? 300. But if he's facing the Philistines, how many did he need with Jonathan? Two. You know, and if he's facing the giant, Goliath, how many did he need? One. But then you go over to passages like 2 Chronicles 20. Remember what he told Jehoshaphat to do when he was uh, uh, confronted by a coalition of enemy soldiers? What do you tell him to do to go out to the battlefield? Do it. Yeah, parade. Carry your instruments of music with you and go out to the battlefield and you'll see the salvation I accomplished. It didn't take anybody. By the time they got out there with their musical instruments in their hand, the battle already been won without any human means. You know, we sing a song that I don't think we ought to sing. God has no hands but our hands to do his work today. I know we mean well with that. But the truth is, God has his hands and he doesn't need any of ours ever. Now, what that song, I'm sure, is trying to get us to do is to involve ourselves in God's purpose. But the truth is, God is not limited by us. He can do it. We need him, and what a blessing he chooses to use us. He's given us some very important things that he's willing to use us to do, but it's not like he couldn't do it if he didn't have our cooperation. So he says, I'm going to save Judah, but it'll be without any of the normal instruments of warfare. Other thoughts? It's the same pattern you see throughout the Old Testament time and time again. They think that God can't do something. Just like in Exodus, when they were exiting Egypt, God in Exodus 14, 14 says, I will fight for you and you're going to hold your peace. He's going to say, he says, you stand over there and keep your mouth shut. Don't start this. I need to help God. And it's just amazing that he apparently still, Judah's still got some good in them left and the difference here because he says, one group of people I'm going to utterly ignore and the other ones I'm going to utterly save. There's a complete difference between the two verses. There's the difference between the golden calves and actually some halfway decent kings now and then in Judah. Uh, and so God is merciful to Judah for now. And then he has a third child, or his wife does at least, a son, uh, and names the son what? What? Loami. And Loami means not my people. Got an idea after these last two children what lo means in Hebrew? Not. Yes, that's the negative. So not my people. Now, in the covenant God made with them, the covenant was, I will be your God and you will be my people. But he's annulling that covenant right here because of their wickedness and essentially disowning them. You're not my people anymore. So, these children born to Hosea have 
names that describe what God will do. Jezreel, God will scatter them because of the bloodshed of Jezreel. Lo Ruhama, no mercy. Lo Ami, not my people. That's the message that begins the book of Hosea. Comments and questions through verse 9. Say. Um, you kind of made a little reference to it. Um, any possibility that in verse 6 and verse 8, the Son of God he has here are not his? There is a possibility, I don't know. It doesn't specifically say more to him. So, Other comments or questions? Not to be contentious when you said God knows their the covenant he has with them, isn't he they more of an older because he said, if you will be my people and I will be your God, and he says, you are not my people. He said, I have told you how to behave as my people and you have not fulfilled that, so why would I continue to watch out for you? So I mean, The relationship has been severed to the point he says, if you're not my people, why do you expect me to take care of you as your God? Yeah, when one person breaks the contract, then the other one's disobligated or unobligated, whatever that word would be. So, yeah. <laughs> Other comments? Okay, now, we do something here that's striking, and it's typical in the prophets. Remember, they didn't have the uh, chapter divisions and all that, but if you're going to preach sermons, is it a good thing if you always preach the same theme every single sermon? Why not? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, you're not preaching the whole truth. Probably boring too, but that's not the reason. <laughs> you know, you want to preach everything God wants you to preach. And you could always preach truth, but it really be a misleading preaching because you're only seeing one aspect and you're not presenting the whole message. The prophets were excellent at presenting the whole message. But that means that there's more to the message of God than just the judgment because of their sins in the immediate future. And so Hosea moves beyond that to another message that will apply. Would somebody read 1.10 to 2.1? The number of children of Israel shall be in the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and shall come to pass in this place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. The children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brethren, My people and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Alright, quite a change. Now God's people will be multiplied, and where it had been said, You're not my people, what will be said now? Yeah, you are my children. And they will be gathered together and appoint one leader and go up from the land. Now this one leader, I believe, refers to Jesus and refers to their exodus out of the bondage and sin and they're going to be blessed with deliverance and victory. For great will be the day of Jezreel. I think he plays on the definition of Jezreel. Earlier, Jezreel had really been used for the idea of God scattering, but now God's going to sow them. Great will be the day of God's planting. 
not now God's destructive scattering. And so say to my people in the New American Standard, Ami, my people, and say to your sisters, Ruhama, compassion. So everything's going to be reversed. From God scatters to God sows, from no mercy to mercy, from not my people to my people. After the punishment, God would come back and bless them again. Comments and questions? If you think about Israel, they never were a people again up until Christ came. They were never brought back in the sense that they were given their dominion of Israel ever again. Judah was brought back, if you remember, but Israel was not. So it, it may lead to that, it may not. Yeah, I think God considered the whole uh, whole nation to be brought back. They made sacrifices for the 12 tribes. Maybe a couple of ways to explain that. But it's true they never had independent self-government. And even at that, I think many of these blessings in the future passages are mostly at, at Christ and at the blessings in Christ. Some of them may be foreshadowed by the return from captivity, but their primary focus is the greater blessings in Christ. Is not the whole Bible pointing toward that? Of course, yes. Yeah, it's hard to find a passage in the Old Testament that's not Messianic. Yeah. They lost their good name, and Christ brought back. Certainly, yeah. He rebuilt the fallen tabernacle of David, according to uh, Amos 9 and Acts 15. Alright, now we're going to go back and look a little bit more at the uh, meaning and implications of marrying this immoral woman and how that relates to God and his people. So, chapter 2, would somebody read 2 to 13? Continue with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, but I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts. I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land, and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children, because they are children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with bears, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them, and she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me than then than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for veil. Therefore I will take back my grain at harvest time, and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her rudeness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the veils, 
and she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorned herself with her earrings and jewelry and followed her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. We really need to see this picture and see how outrageous their idolatry was and see how outrageous our betrayal of the Lord is. He turns to the faithful few in the nation, he says, contend with your mother. He says, she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That's basically a declaration of what? Divorce. He's done with them. Husbands or husbands-to-be. What do you think? How many times would your wife have to run around on you before you got tired of that and decided you didn't want to stay in the marriage? You know, how does it feel to be betrayed? Well, God finally got fed up with it. And he's, he's so upset with her. He says, you know, if she doesn't repent, I'm going to strip her naked and expose her as on the day she was born. It's pretty fit punishment. She's been exposing herself to her lovers. I'll just expose her nakedness uh, and, 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 and make her uh, exposed to the elements, basically. I'll, I'll strike her with, with uh, drought. I'll have no compassion on her children because they were born of immoral relationships. For their mother has played the harlot, verse 5. And look at what she says. I think this is the most outrageous thing in verse 5. What does Israel say she's going to do? She's going to go to her lovers because look at all that her lovers have given her. Why, they've given her her bread and her water, her wool, her flax, her oil, her drink. Now think about this. You've got this wife who, who talks about her boyfriend giving her all these jewelry, all these wonderful chocolates, all these flowers, this beautiful car, this nice house. She's just all so, so lovey-dovey with her boyfriend because he's brought all these things to her. But the truth is, you bought all that for her. You're the one who gave it to her. And she's given the credit to her boyfriend she's running around with that hadn't done anything good for her at all. Guys, how would you feel? How would you feel? Indescribably in a rage and upset at the same time. Yeah, indescribably in rage. That's a pretty good way to say that. It is outrageous! You let her do that. I mean, you worked hard to buy her all that stuff that now she's thanking the boyfriend for. I, that's just that's just wrong. Man, that, can, can you imagine how, how difficult this was for God to deal with? Look at all he's done for his people. He, who brought them into the land of milk? And who led them out of slavery? You know, who provided the rain for them and so forth and so on? And they say, a oh, blessing be Baal. Look at all the blessings Baal brought us. <laughs> we ever had that problem? That's it. Doesn't it say Colossians 
referring verse 5 that our covetousness is idolatry. Yes, it is. Is that not the same thing that God is speaking of here, idolatry? Yes, it is. So, therefore, how does God view us when we're putting things before Him continually in our day? Yes, when we, when we betray our marriage with God for material possessions and give the credit for our prosperity to ourselves or our career. the stock market, our career, luck, the government programs, the company, education, you fill in the blank. We say, oh look, you know, this this provided me so much prosperity. My, we often give the credit to ourselves. That's probably our biggest thing. You know, look at what I did. I'm a hard working man. You know, I'm I'm really I'm really capable. You know, I'm really intelligent. I really work well with people. Look at all that I gained for myself. And what's God thinking? You bonehead because <laughs> because why? Why would God be upset with that? He gave it to us. We're not giving him the credit. We're giving the credit to ourselves or fill in the blank, Peter. And it's not just that we give the credit to those things. It's that we went after those things at the expense of God. We put our education above God. We put our job above God. We put our family above God. And then we say, oh, isn't this wonderful what, what we've gained? Yes, exactly. Exactly. You wouldn't live with that as a husband. You know, not only, not only is the wife prostituting herself, she loves them more than you. It's just, it's just unthinkable. And God is outraged. And God won't put up with it. So look what he does. He says, therefore, there's some therefores in this passage that are pretty significant. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her away with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. In other words, I'm going to block her way. I won't let her find what she's looking for. She will pursue her lovers, but she won't be able to find them. Now, it is a, it's amazing. God is so outraged that he blesses his people with failure so they'll turn back to him. Uh, it's incredible that even in his punishment, he's really blessing us. You know what the biggest blessing for the prodigal son was the starvation, the famine that occurred in that land, and the fact that he couldn't get a decent job and couldn't even get a job that would feed him any hog slop. That was the biggest blessing he got because that was the means to bring him back. So God will make them frustrated in their purpose to the, where they can't get what they want, they can't find what they're looking for, and she'll say, I'll go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. I think the worst thing is, when we have success, when we're not seeking God. When things go well for us when we're not seeking God, that's the worst possible thing. The best blessing we can get when we're putting other things in front of God is when God causes all to blow up in our face and we fall flat on the ground. And so that's what God is going to do as a punishment slash blessing for His people. 
It is amazing how much hurt God takes. And still, in it all, acts in a way that ultimately ultimately blesses his people. He says in verse 8, For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. She didn't even know it was me. She does not recognize me as the source of her prosperity. You remember when the Israelites went into the land in Deuteronomy 8? Moses warned him. He gave him a good and fair warning. He said, I'm going to bring you into this wonderfully prosperous land. Beware lest you do what? Forget me. Forget me and think I did it all. Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18. You're going to be tempted to think you got it for yourself. And it's not true. They used God's blessings, the end of verse 8, for Baal. How do you suppose God takes it when we take His blessings and then use them for the things we're giving ourselves to that are not God? That would be like, can you imagine what you feel like, guys? You marry this woman and you you really work hard and, and you get some money and you get some stuff for her. And she takes that stuff and gives him to her boyfriend so he'll like her more. What do you think God thinks when he gives us all these blessings and we turn around and give them to whatever idol is in our heart, to whatever thing that we betray God with, and we turn away from our exclusive faithfulness to God with? That's the way it felt to God. And so he says, I'm going to take back my grain. It's not her grain. It's my grain, God says, and my new wine, and my wool, my flax, and I will expose her in the sight of her lovers, and there won't be anybody to rescue her. When she's exposed before her, the idol gods, there won't be anybody to help. And I'm going to put an end to all of her feasts, or new moons, or Sabbaths, or festival assemblies. I'm going to destroy her vines and her fig trees. Remember back in 1 Kings 4.25, where under Solomon every man lived under his own vine and under his own fig tree? He's going to, leave, he's going to take those away. And I'll tell you, when God destroys the vines and the fig trees, that's, that's bad. You know why? Think about what's worse. A crop of wheat destroyed or the vines and the fig trees destroyed? Which is worse? Why? It takes longer to restore. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, you can replant the wheat the next year. You take away the vines and the fig trees, you're taking away the hope for the future. I'm going to take away her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I'll make them a forest. I'll punish her for the days of the babies. So you've got the therefore in verse 6, you've got the therefore in verse 9, therefore God's going to frustrate her purpose, therefore God's going to take back all these blessings he'd given her because she has been outrageously unfaithful to her marriage with, with God. Comments and questions? Yes. I think we can uh, learn something very important about repentance here. Uh, you see in verse 7, when it, it's not that she feels like she's wronged her husband it's the, that she can't deal with the consequences of her sin um, and in the same way why do we go back to God now is it just because we don't like the consequences that have fallen upon us or is it that we're truly repentant and we're truly trying to change our ways because you can see in the history of Israel they just they, they get blessings and then they fall away get, everything gets taken away then they are revived and then the cycle just keeps going on and on so we've got to let the frustration and the 
failure lead us to love God, not just mourn our loss? It's a very good point. I think it's interesting. Yeah, talks, or, uh, sorry, Gary Henry talks a lot about the idea of substitute satisfaction. I think you see that. Yeah, they, they had the Lord. I mean, the Lord. And able to serve Him. There's nothing better. There was no better husband to have had than the Lord. And, and they're willing to substitute that for these cheap, worthless gods. I think that's maybe a great lesson for us we can see in this. You know, we can serve you know, the Lord. And maybe half of our battle is when we stray is that we aren't thankful enough to be able to serve. And, and to have a God who would be willing to love us, we substitute that for these pitiful things. Yes. I think you see the human nature of Israel in this. Something goes wrong, and she goes back to her lovers. The last place she turns is God. And we sit there and we go, well, why would anyone do that? You think about your own life. Hard times have come. I better, economic hard time, I better get another job. I'm having trouble with something. I better go see a psychologist. How many things do we go to before we say, I better go have a conversation with God. I better go seek God. And I thought about and. There's been a lot of Isaiah study here, but in the beginning of Isaiah, he says the ox knows where the food comes from. And this woman doesn't realize that God has given you all these things, and she seeks the lover again, and more things keep getting lost while she does that. It just gets worse and worse because she doesn't go back to the beginning. Excellent point. That's exactly right. Patrick? In, in all of this, I want to ask the question, does God accept anything but complete, complete devotion to uh, so often we want to, and we've hit on this a lot this morning, but do we try to devote maybe even 95% of our lives to God? What's wrong with giving 100% of your life to God and being the living sacrifice that we ought to be? And that's what we see in these Israelites, that they didn't want to give 100% to God. They wanted to give to their lovers, their, their idols. But we fall under the same condemnation if we're not completely devoted to our Father and ha and put all the stress on that relationship first. We probably wouldn't like it very well if our wives were content to live with us most of the time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I think a lot of times, especially in my mind, I see the Lord as having two main emotions, anger and love. And here you say the pain. The pain the Lord is feeling because of what, the, what His people have done. You know, the Lord isn't just about wrath. The Lord isn't just about love. But you see this pain that they have betrayed. This is not just, oh, I'm going to have to judge you. This is, this is the pain of, what did you do? This is what you did to me. This hurts me. And how often do we see that? We see, oh, I've done wrong. God's just going to take a trap on me. It hurts the Lord to believe it. When we turn against Him, this it's like driving the nail into Christ again. The pain that the Lord feels are when we turn. Amen. Love it. Uh, thinking about this woman being in comparison to Israel and ultimately us, I think even though after going through all these things, she eventually sees where the blessings come from, she'll only remember that as long as it's convenient because once things get comfortable again, once she goes back to her husband assuming he'll accept her again, and once everything's up and going good again, then she'll forget again. She'll go to her lovers again and give them the credit again. Is that what we do? I mean, that's our danger. Probably. I, I, 
this may really be true. I've heard people say, for you know, every uh, ten people that can stand adversity, there's only one person that can stand prosperity. And there's a lot of times when we do worse when things are going best. And uh, we've really got to constantly be grateful, constantly remember God is the source of every blessing, constantly feel that debt to and constantly value the blessing of the close relationship that we have with Him. Why in the world would we ever want a lover? Anything else to give our lives to other than the Lord? Other thoughts? You guys are doing really well. Um, are you are you wide awake enough to just keep going for a while or do you need a break? I can do either one. Are we okay? Everybody okay? Okay, we'll go a little while longer. If I see that we really need that, we'll, we'll stop and stretch or whatever. But you're doing great. Really appreciate that. Well, this next section is amazing. This is amazing. You know, you're God and you're facing all this and so the next section starts, therefore. You know, we've had the therefore in verse 6. We've had the therefore in verse 9. And you won't believe this therefore. On the basis of how outrageous they've been. You know, how, how evil and wicked they've been. Verses 14 to 23. Therefore, behold, I will bring her into the room and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there. In the valley of Achor as a door of gold. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, and you will no longer call me Baalu. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. And in that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the trees of the and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know that I. Uh, then you will know the Lord. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grains, the new wine, and the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say you are my God. It's unbelievable. This is unbelievable. You've been betrayed by this woman you've given everything to. And she uses them for the bales and gives them the credit. Therefore, I will do what? Allure her. Allure her means to do what? Try to attract her back. Try to woo her back. In view of her wickedness, why would you want her back? Can you imagine having a woman who's done this to you, and she's done it and done it and done it and done it, and you go, and you try to win her back over to you. That's unbelievable. The, the wrath and punishment of God, to me, is extremely logical. You can understand that. 
there's nothing surprising about the fact that God would punish people as rebellious and wicked as what humanity is. The amazing thing is that God would love anybody who's done things like this. So he says, I will allure her and bring her where? To the wilderness, which reminds us of the exodus. Freedom from bondage back into the wilderness again. The, the exodus is sort of the prototype of redemption. And speak plainly to her. I'll give her her vineyards from there. You can go back to verse 12. And the valley of Acor as a door of hope. That is my um, prototypical statement for teaching the prophets. So you need to remember this every time I ever teach the prophets. We'll go back to this. Uh, this is great. The valley of Acor as a door of hope. It's only great, though, if you have any idea what the valley of Acor means. And uh, we don't usually remember place names very well. The valley of Acor was the place where... Achan was stoned. Now you have to go back and remember the situation. God is giving the land of Canaan to the people of Israel, and the first place they went to conquer was the city of... Jericho, and they conquered that with pretty uh, relative ease. Just marched around it about 13 times, the walls fell down. And the next place they were going to conquer, the next place kind of on their route, was the city of Ai. And it was smaller and less defended. They didn't even need to send their whole army up there, so they sent a contingent of men up there to be able to take that city. And the result of that first battle was terrible defeat. So the Israelites are like, what's wrong? Where did God go? What happened? They plead with God, and God tells them that there's sin. He can't give them the blessing of victory because of the sin that exists among the people. And the sin was actually the sin of who? Achan, who'd taken some of the stuff of Jericho that they were none of them supposed to take and hidden it in the ground under his tent. And so they cast lots to find the culprit, found it was Achan, he confessed. Because his sin was present, God hadn't been able to give them the victory. So when Achan confesses his sins, what do they do with Achan and his family? Stone him. By by punishing and killing the culprit, what happens in battle number two for Ai? They win. So the punishment is the door into the blessing. God had to punish Achan and get rid of the sin so he could bless the nation. So often God's judgments are the doorway into the hope. God sent them into captivity to purge out their sin so he can do what he really wanted to do anyway, and that was to bless them. So the valley of Achor is a door of hope. The very punishment leads to a blessing. I want you to do something right quick. I think we can do this and this will work. Just stand up and let's stand up quietly. But you don't have to stand up, but why don't you stand up? (laughs) You guys are doing tremendously. But it really does help just to do something to kind of move around a little bit. And uh, I'm going to do this for about 30 seconds. Right, and I'm pausing it. All right. And uh, 
that he gives them the valley of Achor in verse 15 as a door of hope. If he hadn't punished them, they wouldn't have repented. Isn't that true? What if they'd have won that first battle? Would they have ever detected the sin in the camp and would they have ever punished it? So sometimes God has to give us the defeat, the punishment, so that we will be able to repent so that he can bless us. And that's the way this was. He punishes his people for their sins so that he'll be able to bless them. So the amazing thing is that God wants to bless them. Would you want to bless a no-count wife like this? Alright, comments and thoughts on that. And you see the higher nature of God than ours because in all this anger, every time he says something that's just completely wrathful, it's followed with, I love you. I want you to change. I want you to be right. You don't see God laughing. You don't see any enjoyment out of God and saying, I'm going to take away your mind. How about that? Yeah. It's all that I regret that I have to do this because I love you. God never takes joy in our sin, and he never takes joy in punishing for us for our sin. It is an amazing thing about God. The love that he has. Now, you know, you don't really value the love of God until you see how bad our sins are. If you don't realize how bad our sins are, then God's love isn't that impressive. But when you relate our sins to a woman betraying her husband, and you see that God is the one who's betrayed, and he still loves her, and he still wants her back. And he says it will come about in that day that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Bailey. What does that mean? And actually, I think we're doing another double play here on these words, kind of like we did with Jezreel. We're looking at a couple of different concepts. The word Ishi means my husband. The word Bailey means my master or my lord. Now, when he says, you'll call me my husband and not call me any longer my master, what does that show? What changes in the relationship? Closer. They're closer, more intimate. When you say my husband, it refers to a greater bond of love than just my master. God is going to transform the hearts of his people where they serve him out of love and not just out of fear and obligation. That's what God really wants. He really wants us to, to love Him so much we serve Him because we want to and not just because He told us we had to and I'm going to grit my teeth and do it. Now there may be some times we need to just grit our teeth and do it. That's better than not doing it. But what He wants, what He's trying to promote in us is a love for Him. You take a, a, a two-year-old who has a strong will and he really, really, really wants to do something. And he looks at you, and he doesn't do it. Tell me why that two-year-old doesn't do it. Fear. <laughs> He's been on the receiving end of a good spanking a few too many times, and he decides it's not worth it this time. It's fear! You take a 17-year-old, who's about twice the size of his parents and who really wants to do something and looks into his eyes of his parents and doesn't do it. Is it fear? 
respect. More respect. Respect. Love. It's the relationship. You, you know, you get to the point where the fear doesn't cut it anymore. And and now, what if what if the two-year-old? Think about the two-year-old who he's just worried about spanking. Mom and Dad leave the room. What does Junior do? <laughs> yeah. But if you have love and respect in the 17-year-old and mommy and daddy leave the room, what does he do? When you serve out of love, it's such much better quality service. It's based on a bond, on a relationship. It's not this thing of just obligation. Uh, I can't get by without it, so I've got to do it. That's God's goal. That's how he was trying to transform these people. Comments and thoughts on that? Yes, Josh. The way that uh, you said in verse 14, I will, I will allure her. It's just incredible how even after we put distance between ourselves and God, it's not just that we've messed things up and we've got to fix things before we can approach God again. But God demonstrates his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And he is trying to pull us into his love. He initiates his love first. And it's on that basis that he reconciles us and gets us to love him. And that's a really remarkable thing if uh, you do something that really hurts your boss. It was really wrong. And it really hurt him. Uh, and it creates a barrier in your relationship with your boss. Tell me who takes the initiative to get things straightened out. <laughs> you do. You need the boss, he doesn't need you, and you're the one that created, committed the wrong, not him. You take the initiative. Well, we need God, he doesn't need us, and we're the one who, who committed the wrong, but he's the one who took the steps to reconcile us back to him. That is a remarkable thing. God's love is unbelievable. The other part of this, with not calling me Bailey, he goes on to say in verse 17, I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so they will be mentioned by their names no more. He's going to take away the very name of Baal, which came to be known as the name for the idol God. He's going to remove even the name from their mouths. Even the memory of Baal would be removed. You know... He's going to purify them from idolatry. He's going to take the idols just completely out of their vocabulary and, and, and make them devoted to him. So you see this great transformation in these people through God's love. Alright, why don't we sit down and uh, appreciate your uh, cooperation with that. That's really, uh, really cool that you guys are willing to do this and it just helps us get a little bit more study in and not have quite so much confusion when we can uh, do this. Caleb. Um, I was thinking about your analogy with the, uh, with the real two-year-old and the parents. Um, it made me think about the way we are today. And it, I, I often wonder, you know, why does God show himself today? Why, why, why was he so much more active back in the Old Testament? And I just thought maybe it's because he's kind of stepped out of the room. Because here after Jesus, you know, he says we're supposed to grow up in Christ. Maybe he's leaving us alone because the only thing he wants now are people who are doing it from love and not fear. Yes, I think there's some truth to that. I, I can see that. We're, we're in a more mature relationship. He expects that from us. 
and he's not micromanaging as much as you would have to with a two-year-old. That's exactly right. Yes. I think you see the development of the relationship being rebuilt. You can understand how Israel will be afraid of God when he comes back because of all that he's done to them because of what they've done. But then the love building, 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That relationship and that bond is being strengthened. But more importantly, down in verse 17, as that's built, when it says, I'm going to take the remembrance of Baal away from them. In relationships where a husband cheats on his spouse or a wife cheats on her husband, or even in a dating relationship when that happens, the person who does it lives with guilt almost their whole life. That is not a mark that will leave either of those people. And God says, not only am I going to come back to you, I'm going to take away the guilt, the remembrance of why we even had a fight. He's going to redeem them so utterly, they're not even going to know about that punishment anymore. It's going to be far from their mind. And that kind of love to say, not even to hold it over them anymore, that I'm being really good to you because of what you wronged me and I came back. He's not even going to do that. He says, it's going to be just like it was before. In verse 19, it will last forever this time. Very good point. Yeah, that's a good point. I like that. Um, in verse 12, the beasts were going to devour, but now in verse 18, he makes a covenant with the beasts to where they don't devour. And then in 19 and 20, I will betroth you to me. He comes back and almost remarries them. <laughs> he betroths them this time permanently. And in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness and compassion and faithfulness. You see not just a patching up of differences. You see a whole new beginning. A beginning on a solid basis, on a closeness. And this time not temporary. And then you will know the Lord. The ultimate in the relationship that we have with God is that we come to know Him and have that kind of closeness with Him. That's what God's after. That's an amazing thing. It's all looking primarily at the time of Christ. And how, in Christ, God shows amazing and unreasonable love to reestablish, again, this relationship with His people. Comments and questions? Um, and, and of course, Hosea here, I see that you know He's betrothing us, and as Jesus Himself called Himself the bridegroom many times, I mean, yes. so this is obviously as much also a prophecy to... Sure. We, we are the bride of Christ. Think about Ephesians 5. The husband-wife relationship is the parallel with Christ and his people. Other comments? Yeah, Josh. The, uh, the radical love of God, I think, is uh, demonstrated in the fact that in taking Israel back as his wife, he's doing something that is actually, if a human being did it under the law of Moses, they would be breaking the law. They weren't actually allowed to divorce somebody for adultery who lives with somebody else and then take them back. And Jeremiah would later uh, comment upon the same thing with Judah in Jeremiah 31. He says, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the heart of them and lovers, and would you return to me? But then he, he tells them in verse 14, well, 13, only acknowledge your guilt, that you have rebelled against the Lord your God, and scattered your favors among strangers under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, 
Return of faithless children, says the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you. That's how extreme God's love is. That he's, he loves us so much that we reconcile us. He's willing to go farther than even he asks his people. Yes, good point. I think that is correct. That's that's the point in Jeremiah three, and so it's um, and of course this point in Jeremiah three as well is for them to not take this lightly. You know, it's not just like that easy. You just take her back. Yeah, it starts with us being honest with ourselves, you know, acknowledge our guilt, so, we admit we were wrong, and that's, that's <coughs> the seriousness of what that involves. Other thoughts. Well, I think the idea is that they will not destroy. They will not, because in verse 12, the beast would devour them. But now he makes the covenant where the beast and the birds would not uh, destroy them, would not perhaps interfere with their uh, crops and things like that. Other comments? And so he says in 21, I will respond to the heavens and they'll respond to the earth. I think there'll be rain. And uh, you'll have the new wine, the grain, the new wine, and the oil. They'll respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. There you see that meaning of Jezreel. You know, now it's not God scattering, it's God sowing. And now you, you now I have compassion, and now you are my people, and I am your God. So, the restoration is complete. God completely reverses the significance of the names of those children, and now he's with his people and blesses them again. <clears throat> so you get a lot out of these two chapters. You see the horribleness of their sin and the unbelievable grace of the Lord. Comments and questions on chapter 2. James. Uh, I think verse 19 and 20 is amazing. I think is with God. Sir. Um, in verses 21 and 22, it's just a really nice thing like, there that the blessings of God come upon Jezreel. And, I mean, God responds to the heavens, and then you have the earth, and then you have the grain, and you want the oil, and all of those things then fall on Jezreel. And just that 
it's a direct line of blessing, and that's how it gets there. There's there's no veil in there. There's there's nothing else to interfere. It's just kind of a neat little progression of where things come from. And if you look back, you look and see what you get. You keep going back, you find out things that God is good at water, and God is good at light, and all of these things. And uh, just remembering that, even that simple concept of where it comes from. Definitely. That's part of our issue, is recognizing God as the source of these blessings. Other comments? Yeah. I think it's interesting, Luke 7, where Jesus, a Pharisee is talking to Jesus when the woman is washing his feet, and he says, he knew who this person was. He tells the parable of two servants forgiven great amounts of money. He says, which one's going to love him more? And it's the one who was forgiven more. And oftentimes in our relationship with God, when we make a mistake, we stop and think it's never going to be like it was before because I've done this against God. And if you look in this passage, not only is God restoring everything, he's making it better than it was before. There's more of a closeness between the husband and his wife because... There has been that broken relationship, and the heat it took to fix it made it more pure. All the impurity, everything that was wrong before is now gone. Because God wants to fully restore everything and make it better. He doesn't ever bring us back to where we were. He wants us to improve. It's a really good point. I mean, this concept of forgiveness that fully restores and then some is probably the only way we can really develop the close relationship with God that we want to have. It's sort of like being saved by grace and not by law. That under a system of law, you always are a sinner and therefore you can never really measure up. But under a system of grace, where you know that the relationship has completely been restored and every betrayal and every vestige of that is totally erased, it enables you to be close. It's hard to be close to somebody that you've hurt because you always feel guilty. God takes away the guilt, takes away the burden, takes away the estrangement. He, he amazingly restores the relationship. I think those are those are certainly accurate teachings. And sometimes our problem with loving God is that we've not come to understand the reality and the um, the extent of God's forgiveness and God's grace. Yes. I thought about this and didn't want to bring it in. If a two-year-old is anxious or something, we get anxious to do things. Uh, we get stress and anxiety. And God is anxious to forgive. He's searching for ways and avenues. He's created ways and avenues to forgive. And He wants to forgive. And that's made clear in the passage. He's drawing everything he's doing. He's doing the back. Put the hedge in the way to make sure He can forgive. Yes. So I, I think it's in, important to, to realize that poetic lanes in this chapter, the not only the play on the word of Jezreel, God so, but in verse 23, when it, when it technically instead of true is not a passionate use it in the original translation, use the word Lorahama, which means that, and then to those who were not my people, it uses the the name Luani, so it actually uses those names to play on that word. It's just poetic beauty. It's a well put together passage, isn't it? It's amazing 
the depth of what God writes, and it's always cool to study. You see so much in that. They're very good. And, and, and I mean, these these kids weren't, you know, born, you know, day, you know, day after day. I mean, this was a long process through the life of Hosea. N- now name this kid this. Now name this kid this. And then he can sum it all up in, in one verse like this. Excellent. Yes, Josh. I think it's pretty amazing that sometimes we get to points in our lives where we question, where's God? You know, where is he at? I can't see him. But yet, he's doing all of these things. He's alluring us, even today, enticing us, essentially. Yes, he is. All right. Um, what's, what's my time definition here? I ought to go to about what? <laughs> okay, then I think we'll take, let's take a break then. Uh, why don't we take about, can we do about a 10 minute break and then come back? I think that's good. Right. Hey, we're not going to pick up the chairs, so... If you, you can stay near your place, it'd be okay. Stay near your place, as long as you find, just try to ignore it, let people out, and you need to go to the back.